Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I have to ask, because I always do, because it's a thing, are you there? Are you listening? I really hope so, because this month I have an exciting announcement. Are you ready? I'm just going to start the show off with this exciting announcement, and that is this. Demon with the Atomic Brain is almost done. As of the recording of this, I literally have one scene left to complete. Well, one scene left to edit and three to complete. What that means is I still need to add in the stop motion. Yes, we have some stop motion from Norman Yeend, who's done all the stop motion in the past. And then I have one more scene to edit, which is only two pages, and that'll take a day or two. Then there's special effects that need to be put into that scene and a previous scene. Uh, Being that I'm recording this in July and it's not even August yet, and I should be done within a couple weeks into August, that means it's, to me, it's basically, I'm there. I'm at the end. And I'm very, very excited. Obviously, I still have to do credits, but credits don't take that long to do. I mean, I kind of use the same credit sequences that I've used for the last several. If you notice the last, say, three or four movies, five movies, the credit sequences are very similar. And that's because I recycle them because they're credit sequences and credits at that. So it doesn't really matter what they look like so much as as long as they have the requisite information, right? Plus they're kind of standardized now, which I kind of like. I am in the process of locking down the premiere date. As of right this instant, the premiere date of Demon with the Atomic Brain will be October 4th. It would take quite a bit for that to change at this point because I've already talked to the owner of the Heights Theater in Columbia Heights and he's penciled me in which means the date is mine and honestly only if something terrible were to happen to allow me not to finish this new film October 4th is the day Wednesday October 4th world premiere of Demon with the Atomic Brain so put it on your calendars in pencil I know old-fashioned calendars pencils what the hell who uses that well some people still do And I make old-fashioned style movies, so I would not be surprised if someone would use a pencil and uh, an old-school calendar. I know people still use them, so stop giving me crap. (laughs) Not that you are. So I'm I'm excited. I think you can hear it in my voice that this long journey of, of creating this film is... Well, it's not really coming to a close. At least, it's not entirely over. I still have a lot of work left to do to be ready for that premiere. But, in my head... The biggest thing, obviously, is actually making a movie. Once the movie is edited, it's done, and I have a movie to show. Now, the thing I really have to do and pour my energy into after editing the film and have this movie I want to show to the masses is authoring the DVD, which it doesn't take that long. It takes a couple weeks. Authoring the DVD at this point includes making the poster because the poster ends up being the DVD cover and cutting a trailer, which is always a special feature for the DVDs. Once I've completed all that after two or three weeks, which puts me in early September, everything's done. The movie is complete in every way. Of course, there's other stuff that has to happen before the premiere can happen, but I can relax. Basically, my stress level is at its highest it can possibly be right now because I want to get it done. Because I can feel the end. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not just a pinprick off in the distance. It's like soon I will walk out of that tunnel into the sunlight. And I'm very, very excited by this. Because the movie has turned out so good. 
And I know I say that every time because it's my job to sell you on the idea that my movies are amazing. But this one is fantastic. And I think people are really going to be surprised by how good it is. And love it. It's just fun. Whereas the last one was was very serious. It was dark. And um, Derek Cook of Monster Kid Radio made a point to point out how many times I said dark in reference to Wereskito. This one is not dark. This one is pure, unadulterated fun. The final running time is actually going to be closer to 80 minutes. The way the script is written, crazy stuff happens often. You don't have time to sit and think. Because that's not the point of this movie. The point of this film was basically to be a rip-roaring sci-fi adventure. I don't want people overthinking it because I'm sure they'll find plot holes that I missed because we're dealing with ridiculous, made-up sci-fi notions. So it's fun. You're going to like it. I I just can't wait for this one. This one's going to be exciting. And two, all the new people have really brought a lot of new blood into this. And I think if you've been listening to this podcast for the last several years, you've probably heard my ups and downs. And that's one of the things I've wanted to share with you, the audience, by doing this podcast and separating it out from the Mimiverse Bonfire podcast. That one is much more conversational, and we just talk. That's The goal of that podcast was always to give the listener the impression that you were hanging out with us around a bonfire, which is something we often do, and we just talk. The reason why the Mimiverse Monthly broke off from that was because we realized that the goal of the Mimiverse Monthly audio cast was to be a sounding board for me and to let you, the fans, know sort of what's going on with the movies and the making of them and and the process. Didn't necessarily match with the hanging out around the fire with your friends kind of a thing. This one was much more intended to show people what goes on and give you more details about making movies and the creative process that goes into this. And I think some of what has come across, maybe a bit unintentionally, but I haven't fought it, is demonstrating some of the crazy-ass emotions that come along with doing these things. Because, to a pretty large extent, this is what I do. Making these movies is what I want my legacy to be, which sounds weird, but it's just I, I want to be known as the guy who makes these cheesy, fun movies. I want to entertain people, and I I very much enjoy entertaining people, and I think you folks know that. I've said that before, and I think after watching one or two of my movies, you can probably sense that I'm out to entertain people. I'm not necessarily out to challenge anybody's preconceived notions of whatever. I'm just trying to have a good time and share that with people. This podcast has very much become my sounding board to talk about not just the production of these films, but what they mean to me. And what they mean to other folks based on my interactions with them throughout my travels. So to get back to what I was talking about, if you've listened to this for any length of time, you know that it's an up and down emotional roller coaster, especially for me, because I do enjoy this so much and do take it seriously. On that note, Demon with the Atomic Brain is almost done. I think you can tell I'm very excited by this prospect. October 4th, that's when I'm going to premiere it, and you need to be there. You really, really need to be there, because it's going to be freaking cool. This is going to be a big one. I, I can feel it. I can tell. Heights Theater, Columbia Heights, Minnesota. Get there at all costs. You're not going to want to miss it. Tickets will be on sale once I actually finish the film. But once it is complete, I will start selling advanced tickets and close down the contributor program, of which, right now, 
The only way you can be guaranteed admission to the premiere is if you contribute. And you can do this by going to demonwiththeatomicbrain.com. And you have probably two weeks left. There's still a lot of things money has to be spent on. Making the DVDs, paying for the theater, getting the tickets, the posters. All these things still cost money. And at this point, everything usually comes out of my pocket because we've spent everything on the production of the film. So any little bit you can contribute helps to make sure everything gets done and paid for. And I want to give you guys the best dang thing I can. So if you're willing, you are seriously running out of time. you got about two weeks left to contribute. And after that, it's done. You don't get your name at the end of this one. So if you're sitting on the fence for whatever reason, get off that fence. Contribute. Demonwiththeatomicbrain.com. Do it. Do it. Once that's closed, that's it. you got to wait for the next movie. Like I said, once the movie is complete, 100%. I will sell advanced tickets. And remember, world premieres often sell out. There are 400 seats. As of right now, with the size of the cast and crew of this film, we've already sold out a quarter of the theater before we've even sold tickets to the public. I'm fully expecting these ones to sell very quickly. The Giant Spider sold out in 17 days. That's the record. This one has lots of new people who are very, very excited about seeing themselves in a movie. A few of them have never been leads in films before, so they're going a little little nuts with this. Honestly, the only way you're guaranteed to get in right now is to contribute, and you'll get your name in the credits. Added bonus. But again, you're running out of time. After that, it's all first come, first serve, whoever pre-orders them, so you got to get on this. This is not a joke. We've been doing this for 11 years, and this always happens. I'm not just telling you stuff to try and get you to give me money, because... <laughs> Honestly, all those ticket sales just go to the theater anyway, so I'm not making anything off it. If you want to go and you want to be guaranteed to go and you want a collector's ticket, that's the other thing is we do individually numbered collector's tickets and have since Cave Women on Mars. If you want one of those, and they are very rare collectibles, you either contribute now or pick up advanced tickets because we don't really have them at the door. I don't print up 400 tickets unless we pre-sell 400 tickets. I generally only print up however many we pre-sell uh, leading up to the week before, and then after that, you're just you're just going to have to take your chances at the door. And it's October. What do you got going on in October? Nothing. It's the beginning of the Halloween season, so I can't think of a better time to go see what is, in essence, a sci-fi slash horror movie in the theater. In October, you get to dress up. It'll start getting cool outside, so you can wear something something nice. I'm going to wear a suit this year. I know already that several of the women in the cast are already picking out their premiere dresses. I mean, this is the thing. If you've never been to one, they're amazing. They're really fun. They're not like just going to a movie. We have people who travel from out of town just to be at the premiere because it is, honestly, an experience. We've been doing this for a dozen years, so at this point, I kind of feel like we know what we're doing. So it's only gotten better with each one. And you know, if you've been to one, how special they are. And I always tell people, if you're a big fan of the movies, you owe it to yourself to go to at least one premiere. Never know which one's going to be the last. I'm always eternally grateful for every year I get, every movie I'm able to release. I know that it won't last forever. It just won't. That's just all good things eventually come to an end. And so don't wait. We've been able to pull this off for 11 years and <laughs> fingers crossed this 12th so go while you can. Ask anybody who has been to a premiere 
and they'll tell you, yeah, you got to go at least once. If you're really a, a fan of, of my films, it's worth the travel. And here's the thing. If you're traveling in, take a little vacation. There's a lot of cool stuff around town. We'll give you a guide. I mean, I, we're thinking about making a Mimiverse guide to the Twin Cities. So there's going to be a lot of stuff for you to do if you come in to hang out, meet people. Last year, dear God, no, James Norgard, Dr. Gabriel, you know him. He took a, a bunch of out-of-towners on sort of a guided tour of the Mall of America. We'll make sure that it's worth your while because you coming in to see my movie means everything to me. I really appreciate it when you, you make the effort to come experience my art. And so I want to make sure that for as special as it is to me, it's ten times more special for you. I want to make sure that you, yeah you, you really, really get it the way you like it. That sounded bad or good, depending on your perspective. All I'm saying is go to the premiere. Go to the premiere. You'll still be talking about it years from now. I still have people who talk to me about premieres they went to. Hey, remember the Cave Women on Mars premiere? That kind of thing. And I'm not kidding you. They're singular events yearly. <laughs> Are they still singular if you've had 12 of them? Anyway, come to the premiere. October 4th, Heights Theater, Columbia Heights, Minnesota. We'll probably do a night before the thing, so you can come hang out with us and party a little bit. Who knows what else? We'll, we'll give you suggestions. We had a, a couple folks come in last summer to see the world premiere run of the Monster Phantom Lake, the musical, and we sent them to try out the uh, Twin Cities Culinary Legacy, the Juicy Lucy, which is the cheeseburger filled with cheese not covered in cheese but filled with cheese there are two bar restaurants in minneapolis that claim to have been the originator of the juicy lucy so it's a thing here in this area where you go to both you taste both and then you pick which one you like better there's cool stuff to do here if you've never been here and even if you have you know this you know there's cool stuff to do and we'll help you find that stuff in addition to coming to this really cool event that you will never forget it's not only seeing a movie. You're seeing a Mimiverse film in a theater packed full of fans of the Mimiverse. Plus a bunch of actors and their family members who are really excited to see their family up there on the big screen. So it becomes this, there's this energy to it that is unlike any movie you've ever been to, I promise. So that's really all I got going on right now. That's all I really want to talk to you guys about this, this month because I, I have to get back to work. I got a lot of stuff to do to make sure that we have a kick-ass time here coming up in October. For now, I am going to throw it off to Rich Chamberlain, the newest contributor to the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast with his Kansas City Crypt. This month, he talks about George Romero, who sadly we lost recently. And after that, Chapter 5 of For Your Ice Only, the ongoing serial about championship curler slash international spy Beef McCormick. And then, to close out the show, of course, we have another joke from Dr. Bob Tesla of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob. For now, take it away, Mr. Chamberlain. Hello, everyone. This is Richard the Monster Movie Kid, and this is another edition of the Kansas City Crypt. On July 16th, we lost a horror legend, an icon, a pioneer. George Romero passed away at the age of 77 after a short battle with lung cancer. George Romero is one of those key figures in the horror genre. He is responsible for a film that forever changed horror movies. 
You might have heard of it. Night of the Living Dead. In 1968, this film, well, it it added a graphic nature to horror movies that we had been getting kind of a taste of in the 1960s with some of the Euro horror films. Films were getting a bit more graphic. We were seeing more blood. Hammer films were throwing in a more graphic nature. And by the 1970s, of course, Hammer films were throwing in more nudity and sexuality, which was kind of the next progression. But in 1968, this little American black-and-white, cheaply-made, independent film, well, it, it was instrumental because it showed a very graphic nature of horror films that well, we really hadn't seen in an American horror film up to this point. Add to the fact that it also took a very popular genre, the zombie genre, and kind of turned it up its, upside down, turned it on, on its side. Up to this point, zombies were the, you know, the voodoo, uh, the, uh, I don't know, the, you know, the, the, the island natives turned zombies by voodoo. That was what we would see in so many zombie films from Bela Lugosi's White Zombie to I Married a Zombie to uh, countless films over the years. But in this film, we saw a different type of zombie. It was a zombie that wasn't made by voodoo, but was, well, it came from the living dead. Now, we never really knew exactly exactly what happened, how the living dead were coming back to life, or I should say that the dead were coming back to life as the living dead, and we never really knew, well, in fact, we never really knew them as zombies, because they weren't called zombies. They were referred to as ghouls, but they were zombies. And Night of the Living Dead would change, well, it would change what zombies were. In forthcoming years, the voodoo zombie would become a thing of the past, and this new living dead zombie would become uh, the normal in films. George Romero would revisit the dead genre numerous times. In fact, he made a total of six films in the series. There was, of course, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, Survival of the Dead. You know, those last couple of films, questionable whether or not uh, they were even tied into the original series. There was talk that he was working on another film called Road of the Dead. Whether or not that gets made at this point remains to be seen. But nonetheless, he always kind of came back to the dead genre. It was interesting. It was a directorial debut for Romero, but he never really made any money off of it because he didn't quite understand copyright laws and such. It became a public domain film. Other people made money off of it, but Romero never did. Yet, he continued to come back to it because ultimately it was what he was the most well-known for. He did a lot of other films, The Crazies, Martin. In fact, I just saw Martin for the very first time a few months ago. An amazing film. I highly recommend it. There's, of course, the classic Creep Show. And have you seen Knight Riders? I recently revisited Knight Riders. I've probably seen this film 30 times on HBO back in the day. And I recently watched it again. And it's a quirky little film, but it's one of those guilty pleasures of mine. I absolutely love it. You know, he did a lot of other films, but at the end of the day, it's always that Night of the Living Dead where we go back to. It's an interesting, quirky little film. It's cheaply made. It's got a virtually unknown cast. You've got Dwayne Jones playing the character of Ben. I think the only other movie of note he ever did was Ganja and Hess, and 
Uh, I've never seen it. I've heard tale of it. Not sure it's something I'm really interested in, but that's the only other film that I've ever, looking at his credits anyway, that I recognized immediately. Judith O'Day played Barbara. Look, she can't act her way out of a paper sack, but it's her first starring role, and she didn't really have a blossoming career after that. But nonetheless, it kind of adds just to this kind of underground filmmaking atmosphere that when you watch Night of the Living Dead, you just almost like you're watching something real in this kind of surreal background. This quirky little film is in the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. It's a classic. It's considered traditionally one of the top horror movies ever made. It's amazing. I just rewatched it, and I loved it still. It is a classic. Despite all of its goofiness and flaws, it is truly a fun film. It is a classic film, and it changed the face of horror. This is kind of the turning point. When we left behind the days of the American horror film of the 50s and 60s, and we truly crossed into new territory, it would open the door for more violence, for more, I don't know, kind of a dirty, gritty, nastier side of horror films. Uh, Some would say that's a good thing. Some would say that that's a bad thing. When you have films like The Exorcist, which came several years later, another turning point in horror films, the films that followed this, Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Friday the 13th, in my opinion, everything points to 1968's Night of the Living Dead as a turning point. It would leave behind the simpler, more innocent times of horror and would kind of set the course for a darker universe of films. Now, I always gravitate to the classic films, and, of course, the films in the Mimiverse are a homage to Days Gone By. But we have to recognize that Night of the Living Dead is truly a classic, and to this day, people still look at it fondly and, well, often share their experiences of when they first saw it. For me, I didn't see it until I... Caught it on a copy of Good Times Home Video about 1989-1990. Having just rewatched it, this film is is one that, well, I think we all hope we could see maybe a better print of it, maybe something that's restored, and there's talk of that possibly happening. Reportedly, two long-talked-about deleted scenes have been reportedly recovered. There's a scene of Helen and Harry in the basement, and another scene, well, I guess numerous shots of zombies surrounding the countryside. Rumor has it that Quentin Tarantino and George Romero were working on a potential cinema re-release, and then putting the film out on Blu-ray and DVD, it would have restored the copyright back to its creators, back to its, well, creator, George Romero. Unfortunately, Romero won't live to see that day happen. But nonetheless, I hope that Quentin Tarantino does do this and that Romero gets, well, perhaps the Romero estate will get at least some compensation for one of the most influential horror films of all time. I had an opportunity to visit the Evans City Cemetery this past June when I was in uh, Pennsylvania for Monster Bash. It's interesting to see how the different camera angles made the uh, the cemetery look a little different and certain things that you wouldn't notice unless you've actually been there. Isn't it cool that after all these years, people are still visiting this cemetery to recreate moments from this little 
iconic horror film. Rest in peace, George Romero. Thank you for Night of the Living Dead and for so many years of giving us horror fans so many wonderful movies to remember and talk about over the years. For the Kansas City Crypt, this is Richard, the Monster Movie Kid. Thank you, Rich, for that. Good stuff. And now it's time for the latest chapter in For Your Ice Only, the curling spy novel I'm writing and, and revealing to you guys one month at a time. Here we go. For Your Ice Only, Chapter 5. Beef blearily and helplessly watched as the stolen news helicopter disappeared into the evening sky, the world swimming and swirling before unconsciousness overtook him. He laid face down in the freezing cold snow until a team of paramedics located and rushed him to a local hospital. Luckily, after a thorough examination and due to Beef's uncommon strength and highly refined athletic body, it was determined that a round of intravenous rehydration would be the only treatment required. Beef McCormick keenly observed the young nurse as she searched for a suitable vein. He felt the sting of a needle piercing his skin, yet it was nothing compared to the pain he felt after letting Ivan Bentonov get the best of him and get away. On top of everything, Beef found himself feeling something reminiscent of shock. He had faced Bentonov countless times on the curling sheet, yet Beef never held any suspicions that his rival could be a KGB operative. Perhaps, Beef thought, this is simply proof of Bentonov's skills as an agent. Nestled away in a small room, the nurse hung a bottle of fluids from its stand and began the process. Beef McCormick could feel his strength slowly return as rejuvenating liquid began to flow directly into his bloodstream. As the nurse double-checked his vital signs, he noticed the name Bertha written in block text on the tag pinned to the young woman's uniform. Studying her face, he realized his imagined concept of a quote-unquote standard Bertha didn't match her striking beauty. You know, I was just going to say that you don't look like a Bertha. Yet, having never met one before you, I can't say exactly what someone named Bertha should look like. Thank you, Beef remarked. Pinkness blossomed in her cheeks as she stammered, for, for what? Proving that what we believe and what is true aren't always the same thing. Oh? What do you mean? Suddenly self-conscious, Bertha could feel heat emanating from her every pore. Simply put, you're stunning. As a result, I would like to apologize for my previously misguided perceptions of your name. From this point forward, I swear to have a much more open mind. Beef's kind and genuine eyes lit Bertha up like a candle. A well-known celebrity, Beef McCormick had a reputation for being skilled in many disciplines, including the realm of romance. Bertha could not deny there was a raw animal magnetism to the man, and, though personally inexperienced in all things love-related, she knew exactly what this peculiarly overwhelming sensation meant. Her pupils autonomously dilated as they locked onto his. Her breathing and pulse quickened. Taking a chance, she placed her hand on his. You think... I'm... The moment unceremoniously dissipated as a series of small knocks thumped through the door... Like a kid caught sneaking an extra cookie from the jar, Bertha guiltily yanked her hand back and jumped to her feet. In an awkward attempt to seem unperturbed, she stiffly smoothed her skirt. Beef, by comparison, was as calm and collected as he always was. 
The latch clicked, and the hinges creakily protested as the door swung open. Bertha huffily made her way out of the room, clumsily excusing her way past the tall, lithe, blonde woman standing in the doorway. The guest giggled as she watched the flustered nurse shuffle hurriedly away. Stepping into the room, Beef's visitor came face to face with one of her favorite sights. Beef McCormick smiling in that special way he only ever reserved for her. Hello, Ingrid. Hello, Mr. McCormick. The way Ingrid's whole body seemed to return Beef's grin betrayed her formality. It was a necessary facade, but one they both not so secretly enjoyed. A vision of Scandinavian perfection in a comely, form-fitting dress. Ingrid turned back to case the hallway. The coast apparently clear, she silently closed the door. Within a matter of seconds, she was in his lap and her lips were on his. Their kisses were passionate and extraordinary in a way neither had ever experienced with another human being. Their connection was like an insatiable hunger, and the time spent apart only intensified their longing. Ingrid Peterson was, in every way, Beef McCormick's equal. The skip of the highly ranked Swedish Ladies National Curling Team, she was one of God's most beautiful creatures. Athletic yet feminine, strong yet approachable, Ingrid's mind was as sharp as her looks, and her pale, blue eyes were second to none, especially to Beef McCormick. Talented, sweet, caring, generous, compassionate, fun and funny, Ingrid was a rare specimen, and Beef thanked his lucky stars every day to have caught the eye of someone so amazing. As several minutes of intensive smooching began to take on a life of their own, Ingrid was the first to pull away. Playfully serious, she asked, "'Were you flirting with the nurse?' Not to my knowledge, Beef answered with a sly grin. It is not nice to give these women hope, Mr. McCormick. Compared to you, every woman is hopeless. Words will not save you this time, Mr. McCormick. And what will, my dear? Only action. The seductive expression on Ingrid's face told Beef everything he needed to know. With his big, strong hands, he pulled her close. His mouth fervently found hers, and, as she ran her fingers through his thick hair, her tongue reciprocated with glee. He explored the swerve of her hips, and Ingrid tingled with delight, until she unexpectedly bounded to her feet and swiftly collected herself. "'What's wrong?' Beef asked, alarmed. "'Someone's coming.' Seconds later, the young nurse re-entered the room, this time trailed by a doctor Beef did not recognize." Bertha, holding a small glass syringe, which Beef noticed was loaded with an oddly colored pale liquid, made her way to Beef's IV. The doctor did not speak. Instead, he stood in the doorway in such a way as to give the impression he was blocking the only escape route. Something about this didn't feel right, and both Beef and Ingrid could sense it. Bertha looked back at the mysterious doctor, and he nodded toward Beef. Clearly apprehensive, she turned toward her patient held the syringe perpendicular to the floor, and flicked her fingernail against the glass with a pair of soft clinks. Simultaneously, Ingrid intently assessed the man in the doorway. There was a rough, seemingly gruff foreignness to his demeanor. A stethoscope hung around his neck, and he wore a lab coat, one Ingrid noticed didn't quite fit him the way it should. As she scanned him from head to toe, she took particular interest in the small scars on the knuckles of his hands. She knew that only someone who had made a living punching things would be permanently marked in such a way. Beef and Bertha locked eyes, and he instantly picked up on her fear. She glanced sideways toward the doctor, and was all the confirmation Beef needed. 
Ingrid immediately picked up on the subtle turn of his head toward her, and, before the man in the door could even register what was happening, the faux physician's intestines found themselves the recipient of Ingrid's right heel. He flew backward through the hall and landed on the back of his head with a nasty whump. Ingrid followed him out, and while he was still vulnerable, kicked him hard across the temple, summarily knocking him out. She knelt next to him and began to search his body. It didn't take long for her to find the gun hidden in an obscured shoulder holster. Back in the room, Beef McCormick tried to calm the now openly weeping young nurse. "'I'm so sorry,' she bellowed. "'He told me if I didn't give you this, they'd hurt my family.' "'It's all right, Bertha. That's not going to happen. "'But he showed me his gun and everything.' Right on cue, Ingrid re-entered the room holding the man's pistol. Beef instantly recognized it as a Makarov, the type used by the Soviet military. Distant angry orders barked in Russian were met by several screams and crashing noises. More coming, Ingrid declared, her placid tone demonstrating her years of undercover experience. Beef returned his attention to the visibly shaken woman holding the needle full of God knows what. Bertha, I need you to do something for me he said as he unflinchingly pulled the needle from his arm and stood. What? she squeaked, her big doe eyes staring up at him. Give me the syringe, and then get into the closet. What? Why the closet? You'll be safe there. But give me the syringe. The extreme stress made it impossible for Bertha to form rational thoughts. Give me the syringe. Bertha was completely paralyzed by fear. Please. The calm reassurance in Beef McCormick's voice soothed Bertha enough for her to perform the simple request. Gently, she placed the hypodermic onto Beef's palm and, upon looking back up, found herself yet again lost in his enchanting gaze. Even under such duress, that deep, lusty connection came flooding back. She inhaled deeply, and in her head, music swelled. But it quickly became a dissonant cacophony as Ingrid grabbed her by the shoulders and shoved her into the closet. Stay there, Ingrid ordered. Bertha had zero opportunities to respond as the closet door slammed in her face. Without warning, a harsh-looking, gun-toting man barged into the room. With a nimble flick of his wrist, Beef McCormick launched the syringe like a dart, and it embedded itself into the man's voice box. Like a well-choreographed dance, Ingrid swung the butt of her misappropriated pistol into the syringe's plunger and gave the intruder a full dose of whatever the hypodermic contained. He nauseatingly gurgled as his body hit the tile. Ingrid poked her head around the door and saw three goons with guns positioned in strategic places in the hallway. One man used an errant gurney for cover while the other two obscured themselves behind an open broom closet door. Their guns were drawn and rounds chambered. Using silent hand signals, Ingrid informed Beef of the current situation. Before tossing the Russian pistol to Beef, she reached under her skirt and pulled a small revolver from a clandestine thigh holster. A dour, heavily accented voice echoed from outside the door. We do not need to fight, Beef McCormick. Surrender and we promise not to hurt you or your pretty little girlfriend. Go to hell, Ingrid's terse retort was met with a handful of nasty Russian profanities. Such language for such a beautiful woman! Why would I surrender to you? Beef called out. You've been trying to kill me all day. Niet, comrade. It was not we who are trying to kill you. We are trying to protect you. Beef and Ingrid shared a confused, albeit skeptical, look. You have an interesting way of protecting people. First you threaten an innocent nurse's family and then try to force her to inject me with poison. He's not poison. He's sedative. We needed to make it look like you were dead. 
Ingrid motioned toward the man with the syringe sticking out of his neck before whispering, Look. Sure enough, Beef noticed the man was still breathing. Then why the guns? Why all this? Surely you, being the great Beef McCormick, understand why I cannot reveal everything to you now, da? I don't believe him, Ingrid added. Beef felt a sharp, vivid pinprick in the back of his neck. Reality began to feel fuzzy, and he groggily fell to the ground. Paralyzed, he saw Ingrid flop onto her side, a tranquilizer dart sticking out of her shoulder blade. As a white-hot haze began to cloud his vision, he watched the young, quote-unquote, nurse step over him, crouch next to Ingrid, and check her pulse. Bertha turned her head toward Beef. "'I have them!' she yelled into the corridor, her voice now thick with Slavic undertones. Her disposition and body language had changed drastically, and she smiled as she proudly displayed a small dart gun in her right hand. And that's it for Chapter 5 of For Your Ice Only. Join us next time to find out what happens next. As always, I am writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I thank you so very much for listening to the Mimiverse monthly audiocast. I hope to see you at the world premiere of Demon with the Atomic Brain. Never forget what I always say. Be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. Talk to you next month. Dr. Bob? <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, with your Mimiverse Joke of the Month. Since it is summer and we have lots of bugs around, I decided we should do an insect joke for you. Why is it better to be a grasshopper than a cricket? Because grasshoppers can play cricket, but crickets can't play grasshopper. And make sure you come out August 12th to the Gateway Film Center when we will be showing Caesar and Otto's Paranormal Halloween. It's the best horror comedy since Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Or It Came From Another World. We'll let you decide which one was better on that. And also, make sure you go to the Gateway Film Center's website, gatewayfilmcenter.org and get your tickets now for the 24-hour Wild Eye Marathon. We'll be having it September 16th. Go to www.midnightmonstermovies.com for more details. (laughs) 